Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Fat Muscle Project podcast. I'm John Gorman, your host. We've got Dr. Pete Fitchin in the house. Pete, what's going on, man? How are you? Good, good. Glad, uh, glad to be here and, and just trying to stay warm. It is really cold here this week. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm in Missouri, and it's pretty cold here. I think Thursday it's going to get down to, like, negative six, which is the worst it will probably get all year. But normally, you know, it's in the 20s, and that's kind of cold here. That's probably a field day for you guys. That's probably nothing. You're up, you're up in the Wisconsin area. What's what's the weather like up there? Uh, yeah, I'm in like central Wisconsin. So yeah, it's it's a let. My computer says it's eleven currently. Feels like minus two, and I've already walked my dog out in it this morning. So I mean, you know, we deal with it. But yeah, we uh, last week I think it snowed like three or four days in a row, and we got like nine inches, you know, between all of it. So um, we're supposed to get another down by Chicago, I think they're supposed to get Milwaukee you're supposed to get like a foot this week. I think we're supposed to only get maybe six inches or something like that. I've got a lot of you that are friends up there, friends, coaches, you know, just people that we do business with. Sally Radka's up there, Cliff's up in the Chicago area. And I mean, I love y'all, but I'm going to stay down here because I couldn't deal with that. The older I get, I just couldn't deal with it all the time. So you're, uh, you're a lot tougher than most. I'm three hours further north than that yet. <laughs> oh geez yeah man well what i like to do is start off the podcast with you know some new stuff coming up for us but i do want to let people know if they're not familiar with you because we will have some new listeners especially as the years go on these podcasts will be around if they're not familiar with you you and i have done a lot of business together us as a group we've done a lot of business together whether it's speaking at the physique summit been on podcasts that i've had multiple times um, we've just done it. You and I were the ones that spoke at the Fat Muscle Academy, the very first one in the customer appreciation event last year. Let people know a little bit more about who you are, because folks, if you're listening, follow Pete. You can check out all his stuff in the show notes. Pete is a beast. And I mean that not just with with business. He's one of these ones that's traveling all over to client shows and he's posting constant high placings with pros and amateurs alike. He's a very accomplished natural pro you're kind of an old soul so get kind of get people the breakdown because dude you've got your hands in so much people need to follow you for good content so just kind of give everyone a, a snapshot of who you are yeah so i have been involved in bodybuilding for almost 20 years now uh, i started training in 02 did my first show in 04 um so it been been around a while i've dieted down what six times and done 13 shows won my pro card in 2012 um, I, yeah, so then I went to school, uh, for one and a half years studying things related to bodybuilding, um, ended up getting a PhD in nutritional science. Um, and then I have been coaching for over a decade now in a part-time sense, but full-time for, um, full-time now for seven and a half years. So, um, yeah, I, I coach mostly competitors. I would say like 75% of my client base are competitors, compete, have competed, want to compete, and maybe 20, 25% are general population. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I wrote a book with Cliff Wilson. I travel a lot, like John said, for talks and, and client seminar or in the client competitions and all of that as well. Yeah, we uh, do. So here's the thing. You might be, I'm going to pay you a big compliment here. You might be the ultimate coach when it comes to bodybuilding because not only do you live it and you're in the trenches hardcore um, and you've had a lot of competitions under your own belt, 
but your PhD reflects it. You're involved in research when it comes to physique enhancement. You've got a massive amount of in the trenches experience applying that research, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Honestly, man, I think you might be the number one person I can think of off the top of my head that that bridges that gap between uh, science and application and does it at a high level. So I, I do want to give you a shout out. And that's why we're proud to have you on the team with Fat Muscle, because that's that's, you know, you kind of set the bar up there for what what a coach can do. When did you get your Ph.D. again? 2015 is when I finally finished. So, yeah, I, I my bachelor's was 04 to 08. My master's was 08 to 2010. And then my Ph.D. was 2010 to like fall of 20. It was like five and a half years more after my master's. So, yeah, it's been about seven over seven years, seven, seven and a half years since my defense. Yeah. So with this whole kind of package, I just kind of tried to give people an idea of what you're like. We have the Fat Muscle Academy coming up, and that's January 21st. If you guys want to check the show notes, um, you're one of the speakers, along with myself, Cliff Wilson, and Ryan Irwin. And this is going to be fun because you've got a topic there that I, I don't think you've presented on it before. Can you kind of give people a snippet of what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, so my talk's a little bit different this time around. So instead, because I know the last time we did it, we each gave two talks. And like, you know, usually when you have a talk, it's like a specific topic and you deep dive on it for like an hour. Right. This is a little bit different. It's it's like research, it's more lessons learned from research, recent research and related to physique enhancement. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's going to be, you know, several different topics. Like here is some recent research on, you know, a few different topics and, and how can we apply that to what we do. Um, I definitely need to cut down what I have because I, I, I went out, you know, and uh, found like probably 10 studies that I'm interested in, which I don't have enough time to talk about 10 studies. So I'm going to have to pick the five or six that I, I really think are most beneficial. But um, yeah, we, you know, we can chat about like ma mainly tried to stick to things that have come out like 2020 and since or like 2018 at the very least and since, you know, since then um, and, and actually just chat about like, you know, here's kind of this question, you know, and, and what does the research actually say and, and how can we apply that, you know, and have some good take home points and things that maybe people can do uh, to, you know, keep progressing or, or see more progress. And I think this, this presentation is really going to hit home with a lot of people because a lot of people are looked down on, especially in coaching industry, if they don't constantly re read research. And it's to me, for some people, it's come almost like making sure you eat vegetables every day. Not everyone likes them, but you're going to do what you need to do. Sometimes it's just hard for people to understand or they just don't enjoy looking at research like you do, for example. I somewhat enjoy it. I, I look at it because it's very necessary and I like to learn but I don't get excited to just pour over it all the time. So this presentation, the reason why I bring this up, if you're a coach who's interested in understanding the science, this is a good one because Pete will break it down for you. And then you can go back. I'm sure you'll have links to the research that you talk oh, about. Yeah. You can go back and make your assessment yourself, but this is nice because you can hear an expert actually break down because man, research can get hard to read sometimes if you're not educated in that area. Like a lot of people read the abstracts and they're done and it's mostly because they don't understand the terminology and there's nothing wrong with that. So you're going to, you're going to make this easy to understand, correct? Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that's definitely the goal, right? Is, is, you know, here's our question. Here's kind of what people typically do and, and here's what the actual data from the study and what does that actually mean and how do you use it? You know, because um, it, it, it doesn't, you know, a graph is great, but like, what, what does that mean? Like, what do you actually do with that? 
Yeah, it's I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'll be taking notes myself and we will be emailing all the PowerPoints out to people as well. So we do have tickets left. Check out the show notes for that. I'm going to be talking on how to maximize your testosterone levels, men and women. So I'm going to go into complete detail on what labs to look at, what time to get them and how to raise those those levels naturally, because I've really for the last two years been able to optimize my natural athletes and some of them have extremely high testosterone levels, which is what we want. You want them to max out at the top of the range. And when you do it naturally, there's, there's no side effects. So, and being able to diet down for a competition and still have a testosterone level in the 500s, I'm seeing that with a ton of clients that before, before I figured out some of the things we knew, I, it was unheard of. If you're a guy, you're looking at maybe getting to a hundred nanograms for this leader at the end. So um, that was very common, especially if you got peeled. So I'm excited to talk about some of these. I'll use examples as well. So I've never really given this talk before, but I've got all the data right there to show what I've seen. And it's it's going to be a fun one. So check out the show notes for that. Pete, let's dive into this. There's I've got four really good questions here, and these are all right up your alley. And some of these I, I'm interested to hear your take on because these are different how I conduct business with clients. So I'm, I'm about to geek out here. I'm just going to jump right in. Let's start with the first one. Are there times as a coach that you like to check your clients and see what they're eating specifically? And if you do that, are there certain foods that you feel can affect fat loss, uh, interrupt fat loss? I mean, we're talking about physique enhancement here. We're not talking about just weight loss because I know in the research world, a lot of the research is done based on weight loss and, and kind of a gen pop population. We're talking about physique enhancement here, like you're prepping someone for a show. Do you like to take a look when people are, are quote unquote stalled out and see what foods they're eating? Yeah, no, I, I, I would say that's probably one of the biggest things I've changed over the last like three to five years is, is really like, I, I make people like send me like, what are you eating meal by meal amount of food in each meal? Like they don't have to do that for every day or every check-in or anything like that. But like if somebody's first starting out and maybe newer to tracking or hasn't tracked in a while, I usually, I'll give them like a kind of step-by-step of how I want to see them put together their day. Um, not just give them some guidance so they're not just looking at some macros being like what the heck do i do with this so like usually i'd recommend like you know spread your protein out in four to six meals a day add a fruit or vegetable to each meal put some starchy carbs pre and post workout and then you know fill the rest in from there right like get your your big things um taken care of first and so i'll have them put together something hopefully taking step by step like that and send me what they're eating just to make sure we get off on a good good you know, starting point that they're consistent through eating what I want them to. But yeah, then also if, if something doesn't make sense, you know, like during prep, the, the first thing I do is look at, well, what's this person actually eating? Um, it's so common to see uh, someone who like, if something doesn't add up and they're, they're not seeing loss, it's so common to see like, I, the most common thing I see is the, the, uh, I don't know, processed diet foods are, can, you know, make up a lot of their diet oftentimes in that situation. And so they're eating the ice creams with too good of macros to be true and the Walden farms and the, the muffin protein muffins and the protein bars and the xanthan gums. And I mean, I, I have seen people's meal plans where they send me what they're eating and it's literally more of that stuff than like actual whole food. Um, 
usually if I can just have them hit the same macros from actual food, a lot of times they start seeing loss again without us having to adjust anything. So, you know, I think part of that, part of that probably is the fact that, and I have no evidence to back this up, but I, I've seen it enough times that I'm convinced that I don't know if the, you know, the macros seem too good to be true on some of these things. And maybe they are, you know, like maybe there is more, more calories there than people think. And, it's a lot easier to track accurately if you're eating mostly whole food and you're, you're going to probably stay more full and eat more over, overall food volume and things like that too. Um, and so I, I really try to push people towards eating like mostly whole food and, and actually eating fruits and vegetables. Like I, I'll give clients fruits and vegetable minimums with their macros. Like here are your macros. I want you within these macros to have at least three servings of fruit and it's like two servings of vegetables, or sorry, at least three servings of vegetables and at least like two servings of fruit, or maybe if their carbs are really low, one serving of fruit at least daily um, so that you're getting some of the vitamins and minerals and not having deficiencies because it's something that's super common. If you look at the bodybuilding literature, like bodybuilders have a lot of deficiencies when they diet. Oftentimes it's because they cut things like dairy and fruit, yeah. but you know, there, there are a lot of deficiencies there. And we know that, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you're you're going to be functioning as best as you can and get the best results you can if you have a bunch of nutrient deficiencies. Because um, many of these vitamins and minerals are going to be involved both in macronutrient metabolism, um, but also just hormone metabolism. Like hormone metabolic pathways include a lot of vitamins and minerals. And and you know if you're deficient, you're you're probably not functioning as good as you could be. You know, a good friend of mine. Jeff Sue, great coach. If you guys know who Jeff is, um, he calls some of these foods Frankenstein foods, you know, like Quest bars and, you know, Quest chips and things like that. And you, the protein muffins. And there's a lot of that stuff that it, here's my theory on this. You know how many protein, carbs, fats is in a sweet potato, for example, like you can break that down. You, you know, what's in a chicken breast, like, you know, that stuff that's in there, whey protein is processed, but you know, what's in there with a good quality whey protein, these protein bars and things like that. It's really, I, I know there's, there's kind of a gray scale with foods. And I think even if you eat like a Twinkie or a pop tart, there's that gray area with the nutrition label that there can be like a 20% variance. I think yeah. Jacob yeah. Plessons told me. So it's like with, you know, exactly with cleaner foods, so to speak, that you, you get what you're, what you're looking at with a nutrition label going, you said you made this big change three to five years ago. Um, I'm, I'm right there with you. I remember I was one of those ones that started off really promoting flexible dieting. I'm like, eat anything you want. And I promoted that heavy. I had people eating ice cream. I had people eating cotton candy. Like I didn't care. Like Pop-Tarts, I didn't care. And they were getting shredded, getting on stage. And there were those people though that were stalled out that I, I wish I could go back because I had another five pounds to go and they would have been perfect. And they were eating a lot of this stuff. So it worked for some, but it didn't work for everyone. And I feel like it's just that the difference in the nutrition label between what is an actual quote unquote clean food. And do you remember back then when, if you said that there were clean foods, dude, you got blasted, you got blasted on social media because you know, that was the big thing. You were a bro. If you said clean foods, I, I think just healthy foods is a better term for it, but yeah. Or I, I usually, you know, say nutrient dense foods or whole foods or, you know, something like that, you know, it, right. you know like, um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, 
again, I, I feel like I'm not that old, like I'm not 40 yet, but like I've been in this sport for two decades. And so I, I feel like when I, I've seen things kind of swing. And so when I first got into it, you know, my first prep, the local trainer at the gym gave me like a set meal plan. It was only specific foods. I, you know, there was no food in that plan. There was no dairy in that plan because those had sugar and, you know, you couldn't have, you know, sugar. Uh, uh, and so, you know, it, I was, it was very bro -y. And then it went like the other direction and, and like, yeah, like you said, I mean, people were eating Pop-Tarts and protein shakes to hit their numbers. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've seen situations looking at clients' meal plans where like, you know, 50% of their calories or more are coming from things that aren't nutrient dense foods. Like that's an issue. Um, and so I, th I feel like, I don't know, I've settled somewhere back in the middle, you know, like I, I don't tell people there's foods they can't have. Like you want to eat that quest bar, have that quest bar, just make sure the rest of your day is nutrient dense food. You want to fit in a serving or two of ice cream on your refeed day, do that. Great. That's fine. Um, hit your numbers that day make sure most of your day's nutrient dense food. And, you know, other than that, and I'm cool with that, but like, it's, it's the, ex you know what I mean? It's going, ex I just don't think it needs to be extremely, you know what I mean? One way or the other, like, um, and so I, I think just that happy middle ground is, is best. And, and that's, that's not sexy, but it's true. Like it's almost that way with everything that we do. Like there's all, it seems to be that middle ground it seems to be where you get the best results, but if it's not extreme, it's not sexy because it's kind of boring to say that, but I, I agree a hundred percent. And you know, one thing I'll add, before we go on to the next thing, if you don't have anything else is every single time I have a client that's eating a quest bar every day, and then they're eating some other kind of package, something Kodiak protein pancakes or what, whatever, right? As soon as I remove that, like you said, I see them start to drop. And to me, it comes down a lot. It's a lot of the fiber dense um, packaged foods their digestion improves and they're not up and down every single day. You know, they're, you know, 131 one day and now they're 129 and then they're back up to 130.9 and it's this big roller coaster. And when they can get those high, high density fiber dense foods out of there, as far as I'm talking about the packaged ones, yeah, just eat some vegetables instead. It seems to really work in their favor. So if you're one of my clients listening, you know, because I've been like, send me your food, I might ditch the protein bars for a while that you're going to drop and they do. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the, I was going to say, when you said the ups and downs, the, the food that I, I think I see have seen like the biggest the craziest fluctuations are those freaking shirataki noodles. People will eat those. Their weight will just like skyrocket from the amount of like fiber and bulk and volume in them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I every time I, someone eat, is eating those, I'm like, just get those out. Like your gut's not going to do well with that. Everybody has issues with those. I, I feel like. I agree a hundred percent. I haven't died in a long time, so I don't touch that shit. So I wouldn't personally know. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next one. This one's this one I'm interested in because I, I this is not something I do. So can you explain your approach to using step counts as part of tracking calories burned or just a way of looking at people's NEAT? And we'll explain what NEAT is. Do you prefer step counts to tracking cardio specifically? What's what's your thought on that? And explain to people what NEAT is, if you would. Yeah, so NEAT is non-exercise activity. So it's all of the other movement you're doing outside of the gym. So Someone working a construction job is going to have a higher need than someone who sits at a desk all day. Um, someone who has a pet that they have to walk a couple times a day will have a higher need. And there's also uh, involuntary need also, things like twitching, fidgeting. Some people twitch and fidget more than others. And um, need is something you see go down when people diet. They twitch and fidget less when they're very lean with food low. 
and which they can't control that, but they also move less. Um, anyone who's been stage lean that I explain this to is like, oh yeah, I, I totally understand. Because if you think about your daily activity in the off season before you start prep, when food's high, your body fat's normal. And then you think about what you feel like at the end of prep and how you do the bare minimum to try to get through your day. And you are not moving nearly as much as you were in the off season. Um, you know, that's a big reason why someone might plateau. And so it's not uncommon to see someone who's getting, I don't know, I mean, I had a client who was getting 13,000 steps a day in the off season living life that was struggling to get more than seven when they were stage lean. Um, that's a huge drop in energy expenditure. Um, and so I started initially just using it as like, Hey, let's, let's just pay attention to this. Keep this stable. Like don't let it drop off, you know? So doesn't mean you still won't plateau for other reasons, but you're at least cutting off a big reason people oftentimes do. Um, and then, I don't know, I don't know what you even call it. It's probably low intensity cardio. Like I'll use it as like a, you know, we'll bump their step minimum up a little bit. So like if someone came to me at the start of prep and said, all right, I'm getting 8,000 steps a day living life. I'd probably be like, okay, let's, let's keep getting 8,000 steps a day. Like just keep living life, you know? And, and I think there are psychological benefits to continuing living life and not just going into to slug mode, you know, in right. prep, like it can be really easy to do. Yeah. Um, but like, I, and I try to encourage people like get outside, you know, like live your life. Like there are benefits also psychological and physiological benefits to like being outside and seeing sunlight, having sunlight hit the cells in the back of your eye and, and things like that have, you know, health benefits. And so, uh, you know, so at first I'd be like, okay, you're getting 8,000 steps a day. Let's keep getting that. Um, we start cutting and maybe at some point they hit a plateau. If it's doable with their daily schedule, maybe we bump up to nine or 10,000 steps a day. And, and okay, what is it at that point? Is that low intensity cardio or is that neat? I don't know what you want to call it. I don't, you're moving more than you were. That's all I care. You know, like you call it what you want. Um, it's probably low intensity cardio at that point. because you're going for an extra walk or something each day. Um, but it, it's low intensity. And I like that because people can recover from it, you know, because as you're getting leaner, um, you know, as you're getting leaner, your recovery is not going to be as good, especially if food's low and, you know, training, nobody cares what you can lift when you get on stage, but like, you should care that like your strength is staying up as much as you can keep it up so that you're holding on to muscle along the way. Um, and so if you can recover a little bit better, it can be a little easier to hold on to strength. And so if I can do a little bit more by having people walk a little bit more and do, they still might have to do some moderate and high intensity stuff. But like, if I can have them keep walking and not see a massive drop off in steps and maybe we bump steps an extra thousand or two a day or something um, as we go and they do a little less cardio as a result, I think they can probably recover oftentimes better, um, you know, from, from training. Um, I, I think though it's a slippery slope. I think there are people who try to use step counts to be able to get away with a lot of food. Um, and I, I'm, I don't know that, you know what I mean? I don't know that I would do that. I don't know that I crank my steps up to 15, 20,000 a day. Um, there's some evidence that you get diminished returns at extremely high activity levels. You don't, you'll burn more calories by adding more, but you don't get the same bang for your buck as if you added steps at a lower, you know what I mean? Step count. You, you start seeing some of that involuntary neat and twitching and fidgeting go down as, as movement and steps go to extremes. Um, you're also not going to recover well. I mean, if you're doing 20,000 steps a day, you're probably not going to recover that well, you know, like that, even though it's low intensity. And so I think the biggest things I worry about with step counts is biggest. Number one is 
don't let it go down when you're dieting. Like keep living life, keep moving. Don't go, don't be the guy who starts prep at 13,000 steps a day and ends it at seven. Um, you know, I think that's number one biggest thing. And then the second thing is, yeah, I use it sometimes to bump up low intensity cardio. So maybe, maybe someone's doing 8,000 a day at the start because that's what living life is for them. And, uh, you know, maybe by the end we've kind of nudged it up a little and maybe they're at 11 or 12 and they're taking some extra walks, you know, to, to get there. But I, I really try not to, you know, take it to it again, extremes, another example, extremes are not, not ideal here, right? If your, your activity is extremely low, there's more and more and more evidence that even if you're in the gym lifting, if you are super sedentary outside of the gym, and even if you eat well and you're, you're, you know, normal body weight, being super sedentary is correlated with increased risk of a lot of different medical conditions. You know, you, you should be moving. Um, and a lot of the evidence suggests that, you know, when you get to about the more recent studies, get to at least like 7,000, 8,000 a day, you get your biggest bang for your buck. So, you know, low is probably not ideal, you know, like extremely low, but extremely high probably isn't either because you're probably not recovering, um, you know, as well as you could be either. Yeah. You know, you, you brought up something, you know, the high step counts, there's a point of diminishing returns. And yeah. I can point out that the hardest clients for me to diet are nurses and they have the highest step counts. They're constantly running back and forth. And to me, it correlates one with a little higher stress just from that type of job. But the more exercise you do or, or activity or the higher your, those extremely high step counts, the higher cortisol is going to be, which is also going to make fat loss harder. So I, I like what you're saying there, man. It's not something that I've ever done. If someone's listening and they want to start incorporating it, is there a specific app or a way that you recommend personally to your clients? Because you've got this down over the years. What's the easiest yeah. way for people to track their steps? So usually if I have someone track steps, usually like if you have an iPhone, there's an iHealth app. I don't have an iPhone, but a lot of people do. Yeah, and I've got it. Yeah. So it's already telling you how many steps you're getting a day, whether you know it or not. Um, there are other apps you can download for Android. A lot of people have Apple Watches or Fitbits or things like that. Um, you know, any of any of those will work. Um, you know, the you know, the biggest thing is just you know being consistent. Because people a lot of times will be like, well, don't those have air? Because that's a question I get a lot. Right. Like, doesn't that have air? Absolutely. I there there is published data showing that like your Apple watch isn't, you know, if your Apple watch says you're getting 7,000 steps, you're not getting at least seven, you're not, you're getting exactly 7,000 steps. It's probably higher or lower than that. There's some amount of error. I don't care. What I care when I, when I have people track steps is what is it telling you you're averaging, whatever you're using to track, what does it tell you you're averaging and keep it there? Like, you know what I mean? Like, and then, you know, so then your activity level's not dropping. Like, even if it's not precise, like, you're, you're not, whatever number it's telling you, you're not letting that number go down as you diet. Um, and then the, the other, you know, if, and then if I add essentially low intensity cardio by bumping their steps up a little bit, you know, yeah, is it, if they're going from 7,000 to 8,000 a day on their app, is their error, is that exactly a thousand more? Maybe, maybe not. But if they're making their app say 8,000 each time, that's, that's more movement yeah. than when it said seven, yeah. like they're moving more. That's, that's all I care. So, I mean, what I typically do is just have them track while living life as usual. And as long as they're usually if someone's getting, I don't know, a reasonable amount of steps, like seven to 10 or, you know what I mean? Or even a little more than that. Let's stay there. Like we, we I usually don't crank it up a bunch. 
Okay, so we're going to see if I'm a fat ass or not. Well, we all know I'm a fat ass. That's started my diet three days ago because I'm going to be standing up there speaking alongside you and Cliff and Ryan, and I don't want to be a fat ass. So it looks like yesterday I had 3,117 steps, according to my yeah. Probably need to move a little bit more. Now, I, I am starting off doing 10 minutes of cardio a day, every single day, plus my workout. But I, I'm probably going to start paying a little bit more attention to that. But I think people that are worried about the exact number, I think you're 100% right. Because it's like getting on a scale. If you if you weigh 180 pounds at the doctor, right? And you go home and you get on your scale and it weighs you five pounds heavier. As long as you weigh on the same scale every single time, that's all that matters because that's how you measure progress. So. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, with, with date, with weights and stuff, I typically have clients weigh daily anyway, so that I average it. Me too. Um, I, I don't, uh, I would never, I don't like looking at one day in isolation, you know, somebody's weight could tick up two pounds today. They send me an update and their average is down a pound and a half for the week. And I'm like, all right, we're good. I don't care that it went up two pounds today. I care that your average is down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, quit eating the fucking quest bars and you won't have that that up and down. <laughs> Just kidding. Back to our conversation before. I just still have some of that regardless. I mean, you know, refeed days or um, you know, refeed days, inflammation from a hard workout, changes in sleep or stress, or I mean, especially like shift workers can have some crazy fluctuations. Yeah. Yep. So they certainly can. Let's let's move on. We've got two more here. Um, and I want to try and keep this under an hour. This right. is an interesting one. I wasn't aware of this. So you said you have said before that you're not a fan of RPE and RIR rest and reserves. Can you explain why? So kind of explain real quick the, the RPE scale. So people listening who aren't familiar understand what that is. Yeah. So RPRR just refers to how many reps sub failure someone's training. So reps and reserves RIR. So that's probably the easiest way to think of it. So like if you're Three RIR, you have like three reps, more reps you can do after you stop your set. Um, in theory, it's a great idea. And I think most of the research shows you need to be within a couple of reps shy of failure to be have an intense enough set to like stimulate muscle growth. So I, I, I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I, I'm not arguing that every set needs to be taken to failure or anything like that, you know, to where the bar is dropping on you at the end of every set. Like I think that would be dumb, um, you know, if you're taking every set to that point. But I, I'm, I think where I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of it is the fact that most people's definition of where failure is, is much further from failure than what it actually is. So like, you know, for me, you know, definition of failure is I can't get that rep bars coming back down on, you know, so yeah, going to one or two reps shy of that is going to be a really, really, really hard set. But if you have someone who's oftentimes, especially beginner lifters or people who don't really push themselves very hard in the gym, they don't have, a, especially beginners, they don't have a good gauge. And there's, there's research that shows this. They don't have a good gauge on where failure is. Um, and so, or, or what is appropriate load to you know, fail around whatever reps. And so if, for example, someone does 10 reps, but they could have gotten 13, but they, you know, that's pretty close. That, that would probably be all right. But like, let's say, uh, let's say if I have someone and they do a hundred, they, I ask them what they can get for 10 reps and they say a hundred pounds. Uh, and it turns out they could get a hundred pounds for 15 reps. Uh, and now they're going two or three reps shy of failure. What they think is failure. Now they're, they're seven or eight reps shy of failure. And you know what I mean? We're getting further and further and further from failure. And, 
actually one of the studies I'm probably going to talk about in my talk, I'm assuming I'm going to probably use this one, is one where they did something like that, where they had people take, um, basically ask them, what can you get for 10 reps on barbell bench? Like people who had been training, like college kids, college guys. And they had them put that weight on the bar and get as many reps as they can with. And I think I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if I remember right, only like 30% got between 10 and 12 reps, you know, to where it was a good hard set, you know, yeah. uh, the, you know, and they were picking appropriate loads. Like a lot of people were getting 15, 18, 20. I, I want to say like 20% of people got like at least eight to 10 extra reps on what they thought they could get for 10. They could really get it for 18 or 20. Yeah. You tell one of those people, Hey, go train now another three, four, another two, three reps, sub failure. You're 10 plus reps of failure. That's a warm up. Like that's not, you're not going to grow from that. And so, you know, I, that's my biggest argument is I think if it's an experienced lifter who can gauge, you know, like this is failure and I'm within a rep or two of it, like it can be a good tool, but a lot of times for beginner, you know what I mean? Like it, in a lot of people don't realize like where true failure is. You know, like I'll have clients a lot. Some oftentimes I'll have them send me videos of things and, they'll be on the hack squat and they'll, they'll finish their set. And I'll be like, that last rep was just as fast as your first. Like you had like five more, you know, uh, like you're way too far from failure. And, and oftentimes it's like, man, I wish I could bring them in the gym with me and just bury them and show them where true failure is so that they could learn. So then, okay, a rep or two shy of this is still a really, really, really hard set. It, it, you know, and, and instead of being essentially a warm up. Yeah. And, you know, the advantage I had when I owned the two gyms, um, you know, I've sold those both in the last couple of years, was I would have clients come in that just weren't making progress. And I'd be training with them for a year, two years. And I'm like, man, like, you're just not looking any different. Come in and train with me. And I would put them through the motions. One, I would look at their form and everything else and really work on mind-muscle connection, but I would see how hard they actually pushed and what that form was like towards the end. And I will agree 100% by saying in the trenches when I've had people come in, most people, if you're using a scale of 1 to 10, you know, RPE, and you say, hey, a 10 out of 10 is you can't get another rep. I want you to try and aim for a 9. That's my general recommendation for my clients. Try and get to a 9 to where – you can safely, you know, you've probably got one more or you're going to need a spot. And if you're by yourself, get to a nine out of 10. When I've trained with them, they've been four, five, six, seven reps off because they could keep going. I'm like, keep going, man. Like, keep going. Like, what's going on? So I think if people could see that, it would make a big difference. But, you know, some of the research we had Brad Schoenfeld on Elite Physique University not long ago. Some of the research talks about just going to failure in general is going to get you a lot farther, regardless of the rep range. So, what are your thoughts on? I know we're kind of we're kind of veering off a little. If someone if they think they need to stop at ten, and you you know you've got more room, just keep going and go until you get to that nine nine out of ten. Do you think that's that's good advice based on the research? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that's no, I. Approach. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think at this point, you know, they, they've shown up to 20, 30, even 30 reps. If you're taking it to failure, like you can grow from that. And so, um, yeah, I mean, if, if you're aiming for a set at, you know, eight to 10 or something like that, and you get to 10 and you can get like four more, push three or four more out, you know, like get to 13 or 14, still a valuable productive set. And then, yeah, maybe the next set or the next week, you know, bump your weight up, you know, like I, 
I think that's one mistake a lot of people make too is they change stuff way too much week to week, you know, and, and aren't, and so if you do the same thing week to week, you can actually progress. So yeah, the first week oftentimes of a new plan is kind of feeling out like what weight do I need? So, Hey, I'm, I'm doing dumbbell bench third, this, you know, in this push workout this time. And it was first before, but where does my weight need to be? You know, I got to pull my weights back. So many more fatigued doing it third um, compared to doing it first. Uh, you know, the first time three, you're kind of feeling that out. And then if you're doing the same thing the next time, you get a better handle on where you, you need to be. And then you can work to progress, you know, add an extra rep or two where you can, add an extra five pounds when you can, you know, and, and work to actually progress something over a couple months. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's go ahead and get to this last one here. When someone wants to compete, how do you help them determine when to compete and which show? Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that's probably the biggest mistake people make when they, they diet for a show is they, they have just an unrealistic expectation of how long it's going to take to get there. Um, you know, you hear people say, oh, oh, it's going to, I need 12 weeks or I need 16 weeks. No, most people, unless you're pretty lean already, you're going to need more than 12 or 16 weeks for most people who are, especially who are natural and who want to get to like stride and glutes level of lean. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're relatively lean already, I mean, I, I had someone in the past who stayed fairly lean and I prepped her in eight weeks, but like, you know, and she was a pro, but, um, but that's, most people don't stay that close to stage weight to where you can prep in that little time. And so what I actually like to do, if I can, if, if someone can be flexible with shows and show selection, which isn't always the case, but if they can be, um, I like to just start dieting and we'll start chipping away at that pound, pound and a half a week or whatever an appropriate rate of loss is for them. Um, and we see, uh, and then, and then as they start getting closer, maybe we have some options, right? So like someone's dieting for spring, we started dieting, you know, late fall or December, January, whatever, and they're dieting for spring. Maybe we have show options, find some options for them. They got one or two options in April, a couple options in May, maybe an option in June, maybe one in July. Okay. We got like six show options here. We're not going to do all six, but like we got some options. Right. Then as they get closer, you know, we get to start getting into February, March. Okay, maybe those April shows don't look realistic anymore. Okay, well, we still got options in May or June. You know, we got we got other options for shows. And whenever they're ready, you know, those are the shows we do rather than having that set date from the start because so much stuff can come up just in life and whatnot. I mean, none of this do, none of us do this as a full-time job, um, like competing, right? Like I, you know, I always tell people I think I maybe have made like fifteen hundred dollars competing as a natural pro, and I'm I'm a mediocre pro, but like you know, it, you're not going to quit your day job to be a bodybuilder, you know, and especially in the natural world. And right. so like stuff comes up, you know, and so if you can be flexible with show selection, that allows you to kind of roll with the punches a little bit more. You have a more stressful week. You can take a diet break. You, you, you know, you're ready early. You can do an earlier show, you know, like you just, I like people to pick shows based on when they're ready versus if possible, rather than having a set date from the start, which I, I understand isn't always possible. Yeah, it, to me, um, I try and set that expectation right out of the gate, and I say, "Hey, we'll find shows. I'll, we'll know when you're about four, truly four to six weeks out, and that should be plenty of time to take a weekend off if you have to request it off." Um, but it's a lot less stress on people when they know that going in. But something else I was going to talk about, I actually use you as an example quite a bit. Some people they appear very lean in the off season 
and they have to diet for a long time. And you, to me, are at that extreme end to where you're that asshole right now. If you yeah. stuff up, you've got full abs, but dude, you've got to diet like 25 weeks minimum and drop quite a bit of weight. Can you talk to people that are kind of in your situation? Because that that's a very real thing. That's that's hurt me as a coach in my early days because I saw someone, I'm like, oh man, we'll have you there in 12, 16 weeks, no problem. And I had dropped, they had to drop 30 pounds. And I'm like, holy crap, you just looked leaner in the off season. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I think the fact that I don't really hold a lot of body fat in my midsection probably uh, you know, skews things because people will see what my midsection looks like in the off season and assume I'm a lot leaner. No, the fat's still there. It's just, a, it's fairly, I have a fairly friendly distribution. It sits in my low back. It sits in my legs. Um, it really sits in the backside of my body. It's pretty crazy. Like I can run an off season cut and maybe the front side of my physique doesn't change much, but you can see a big difference on the back side of me. Like it sits on my back, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's crazy. Right. Um, and so it's still there, but yeah, I got into trouble with that when I was younger too, because there was an, I did my first show in 2004 and yeah, I wasn't big enough. I was only like 145 pounds on stage. I needed to be bigger. And I was told you got to bulk. Right. And I, I kept gaining and gaining and, and people are like, Oh, well you're 190. You can still see your abs. Oh, you're 200. You can still see your abs. I got up to 210, which is the heaviest I've ever been in my life. Um, yeah. And then, and then that was the first prep I worked with Lane and man, he had a hell of a time because I started at 210 and in six months, he dieted me down to 156, and I still probably could have been leaner. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I because I got to 210, and you know, but I even had ab, somewhat ab, visual abs there, right? Like, and so I think you can get into a lot of trouble because everybody, you know, even now, like I'll hit like 190, 195, and I compete carved up. I was like 159 when I looked my best in 2020. Um, you know, bottomed out. I was, I don't know, one, well, bottom bottomed out when I was cut weight to make weight. I was like 152 for that NPC show before I carved up, but I was 159 by the next morning. Um, but, um, but I'm like 159 on stage and I'll get up to like low one, low mid one nineties, you know, and, and, you know, Cliff will be having me cut when I'm like, you know, 195 and people at the gym, well, why are you cutting? You're so lean. Dude, I'm like 36 pounds over stage. Like, you want me to be 40 or 50 over, you know, like at some point, like I, I have to, you know? So yeah, I've gotten into trouble with that in the past. And I, I work with Cliff in the off season these days. So it helps keep me honest so that I don't fall into that trap of, yeah, it still looks, all right. my midsection still looks all right. I can just keep gaining. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, uh, it definitely, you can fall into that trap if you have body fat distribution like mine, where you see abs at 40 pounds over stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, I think for a lot of people that have never dieted really hard and they're thinking about competing or they're just in their first diet cut in general, I think sometimes that first diet or that first prep tells you a lot because then at least you understand how low you're probably going to need to get, which is always lower than people realize. So I think, you know, the point is the question was, how do you help people determine this is the perfect example of when they need to be open-minded to just finding a show as you get ready and as you get leaner, because you don't know what you're going to weigh. Because if yeah. someone like you came to me and, and you'd never dieted for a show, but you look like you have, like you do now, I, now these days I'd be like, Hey, listen, like, I don't have, no, I don't know what your stage weight's going to be. So let's just mm -hmm. aim for about a pound, pound and a half week and let's just roll. And then we'll yeah. know as we get closer. Yeah, no, ex exactly. I mean, 
And yeah, obviously, if someone's competed before, it makes it way easier, right? Especially if they've competed before and been lean enough. Um, so like it, it, yeah, if someone's like a pro and they're aiming for like one of the big pro shows where they can't be as flexible with, with weight or like an NPC national show or something, you know, where the date isn't flexible as flexible, you know, as a first time amateur or something, um, you know, if you're having been lean, you know, stage lean, like, you know, how many pounds they have to lose, which gives you a little better idea of about how long it's going to take if things go well. Um, it doesn't mean things always go according to plan. Sometimes, you know, cut goes way quicker. And sometimes it, it doesn't and goes slower. You know, every prep can be a little bit different. But um, but yeah, I, I think once you've prepped once, at least having some idea of the ballpark where your weight may, may need to end up can give you a really good indication in future preps. Yeah. And bodybuilding, extreme physique enhancement, it's the ultimate patience endeavor so chill the fuck out be a little patient like we're all we're all we want it to be ready now so just just be patient a little bit man this was a fun episode we're going to have you on quite a bit more because it's the fat muscle project podcast and you're one of our elite coaches so we're going to have other topics and things to cover i think covering mini cuts would be a good one to talk about that we'll talk about more stuff coming up um but folks check out the show notes Come meet Pete, come hear us talk, come have a blast. We're going to have an open gym. We do have some super VIP tickets left. We've had, uh, I think we've only got a couple of those left. So buy those, you get to come train with one of the fat muscle coaches and it's going to be a blast. So Pete, appreciate you coming on, man. I hope you stay warm up there and I'm going to link all of your information in the show notes. If you want to buy his book, bodybuilding, the complete contest preparation handbook, that you wrote alongside Cliff. Um, I've got that in the show notes as well. So yeah, man, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me for myself and Pete. We're out of here. See you guys.